How can something be so frightening and yet so ridiculous? And no, I'm not talking about my accent. I'm talking about Protect and Survive. As we know, that was a famous, or should we say infamous, public information campaign created in the late 70s, coming to prominence in the 80s, which tried to tell the British population how to keep their home and family as safe as possible under nuclear attack. Now, everyone who's listening to this podcast knows that you cannot keep yourself safe under nuclear attack if you are at ground zero or anywhere near ground zero. The only hope of being safe is if you are relatively far from the detonation. But then, as you know, if you are far from the detonation and manage to survive the blast, you then need to contend with the fallout. And if you are able to miraculously survive blast, fire and fallout, you then have to contend with plague and starvation and anarchy and disease and the collapse of society. So why would you want to survive? Nonetheless, the government created this campaign to try and show us or imply that nuclear war was survivable if we would only be obedient and follow their instructions. And when Protect and Survive became known to the public, the films, of course, were never broadcast. They were only going to be broadcast if and when nuclear war was imminent. And thankfully, that situation didn't arise and hasn't yet arisen. But the booklet which accompanied Protect and Survive did become common knowledge because you could buy a copy for a small fee. And of course, the media obtained copies and they ridiculed it. And it was discussed in Parliament and subject to ridicule there too. And Protect and Survive is a curious thing because even though it was openly mocked everywhere from Parliament to (laughs) on the set of The Young Ones, even though it was mocked, it still remains terrifying. And it's so strange that something can be simultaneously ridiculous and frightening. It's almost illogical, it doesn't make sense. And yet, is that not the very core of nuclear war and the campaign to protect yourself from nuclear war? It doesn't even begin to make sense, and yet we try to do it anyway. So in this episode, we'll look at the contents of Protect and Survive, but our main focus will be on the the ridicule and the mockery that it received. Now, before we begin, let's listen to the terrifying jingle or theme tune of Protect and Survive. Jingle seems like a too friendly and light-hearted a word for something so frightening. But whenever I hear this, my blood runs cold. A few people have told me on Twitter that they use this as their phone ringtone. I don't think I could bring myself to. I already get nervous whenever my phone rings, so the thought of it <laughs> playing this tune to me is um, makes it doubly terrifying. But here's the infamous spine-tingling tune from Protect and Survive. You can protect yourself and your family, and later on we will show you what steps to take. <laughs> First, let's take a quick look at the contents of Protect and Survive. 
we'll stick here to the film rather than the booklet so that I can play you some clips. Now the film was split into 20 short clips, 20 short films and these of course were secret and were intended only to be shown when a nuclear war was imminent. But they were leaked to the BBC and as we know a few short clips were broadcast on the Panorama episode If the Bomb Drops that was shown in 1881 And listeners to this podcast will know that it is a brilliant programme and is available on YouTube and is presented by the dashing Jeremy Paxman. The short films have titles like Nuclear Explosions Explained and yes, the style of the film is childish, I suppose. looks cartoonish. Interestingly, they were produced by the same people who made the Charlie Says, public information films, and also the children's cartoon, Crystal Tips and Alistair. So they are colourful and childish and simple. And there is a narrator, Patrick Allen, who doesn't have a childish and simple voice. He has a very authoritative, deep, masculine voice. I believe we've discussed Patrick Allen before in an episode here, the one about 1980s nuclear pop music, because he provided a voiceover to Frankie Goes to Hollywood's Two Tribes single. If any member of the family should die whilst in the shelter, put them outside, but remember to tag them first for identification purposes. But each of the short clips which make up the Protect and Survive films Nuclear Explosions Explained is the first one, and as I say, very childish and very simple, telling us little people what a nuclear bomb could do and why it is quite dangerous. It then tells us what to do when we hear the siren and what the different types of siren are, such as the warning siren, the fallout alarm, the all-clear signal. It tells us how to build a fallout room, and how to assemble within that fallout room an inner core or refuge, which is, of course, the famous (laughs) idea of unscrewing the doors inside your house, propping them against the wall, piling them high with bags full of clothing, boxes full of books, perhaps slapping a mattress on the side, and you would wriggle inside there and stay there for at least 48 hours. It also tells you what you will need in your fallout room, such as your first aid supplies, your food, your water, how to put together a makeshift toilet, because you can no longer use the normal toilet in your house because, well, one, you can't leave your fallout room, and two, the water and sewerage systems will no longer be working. So you must keep away from fallout until it is safe, and this may mean staying in your fallout room for up to 14 days. Prepare yourself for this now by storing all the things you need. Put them in your fallout room or stacked up within easy reach close by. Here is a list of the most important things you will need. Drinking water. Food, mostly in tins. Portable radio and spare batteries. Tin opener, bottle opener, some cutlery and crockery. Warm clothing. Memorably, it tells us... What to do if someone dies in the shelter? That's certainly the clip that I remember most vividly. 
it tells us that if someone dies in our shelter, we've got to wrap them in a bin bag and put a nice label on the bag. And if no one comes to collect the body, we've got to bury it in the garden ourselves. So it is all horrible, horrible stuff, but delivered to us in colourful, basic, childlike cartoons. If anyone dies while you are kept in your fallout room, move the body to another room in the house. Label the body with name and address and cover it as tightly as possible in polythene, paper, sheets or blankets. Now, the fact that it was very basic and very childlike, that was mainly what left it open to ridicule because it implied that if we were only obedient and followed instructions, we could survive. And that, of course, deserves to be ridiculed because even if you are the most pliable and loyal and subservient member of the population ever and do exactly what you're told, if you are in or near a target area, there's nothing on earth that will protect you. The only thing that will protect you is geography and distance and luck. If you are able or are lucky enough to be far away from the blast and not in the path of fallout, then yes, you might survive. You probably will survive. But do you want to? These films never ask that question. They're all about surviving the blast and the initial two weeks, for example, when fallout is at its heaviest. They don't ask what will happen after that, and after that, and after that. What happens months and years down the line when you're living in a society which has fallen apart, where there's no foods, no clean water, no organised healthcare, there is no police force or state to protect you, or if there is a state, it is only concerned with protecting itself and prolonging its own life. It is not concerned with the little guy in the street or in the remains of the street. I'm sure we've discussed that in previous episodes. In the early Cold War, Britain's uh, nuclear war planning and civil defence was all about rescue. We can help you. We can rescue you. But then the Civil Defence Corps was disbanded in 1968 and the emphasis switched completely from pulling you from the rubble and patching you up and looking after you to looking after the government and the state, making sure the British state was still able to exist, as they termed it, continuity of government. So that became the important thing. A warning may come quite unexpectedly. We will now tell you what to do if a warning sounds when you are at home, and then we will explain what to do if you are out of doors. First, if you are at home, if attack is imminent, you will hear the attack sound like this. So take cover at once. Send your young children to the fallout room, then go quickly and turn off the gas and the electricity at the mains. So let's look at the mockery Protect and Survive received. We'll start with its portrayal in popular culture. Um, the most famous appearance probably of Protect and Survive in TV and comedy was um, its appearance in an episode of The Young Ones called Bomb, which went out in 1982. And in that episode, 
if you don't know the young ones, it is ridiculously and brilliantly surreal. So, you know, don't question the plot. The plot involves an atomic bomb being dropped into their flat and it lies propped against the fridge door and then they all squabble about what to do with it. Rick, of course, wants to use it to try and blackmail Thatcher, whereas Neil, um, poor, downtrodden, miserable Neil, reaches for Protect and Survive and decides to paint himself white in line with government advice. And he gets a pot of paint and he stands next to the atomic bomb, painting himself white, and then Rick demands to know what he's doing. And when he says, painting myself white, Rick is disgusted with him. He says, you're a racist. Even in death, you're a racist, painting yourself white. So that was The Young Ones. However, the most powerful portrayal probably of it in pop culture is that of its appearance in When the Wind Blows. Again, we've done an episode on When the Wind Blows, a graphic novel, and then later made into a film about an old couple, Jim and Hilda, who live out in the countryside, so survive the nuclear war, and they very carefully obey the instructions and protect and survive. And it's heartbreaking because, firstly, they put their trust in the government's advice, believing that if they burrow inside their shelter, inside their refuge, and patiently wait for um, help, it will come and everything will be back to normal. They're an old couple, so they remember the Blitz, and they remember it with nostalgia. They remember it fondly as a time of great adventure and great British spirit, when everyone was a hero. And so they think that this nuclear war will just be like the Blitz if we just do what we're told and be brave and have a stiff upper lip. We'll come through and everything will be fine. And it's absolutely agonising. And of course, Protection Survive features in that because Jim makes little excursions to the library every day to read up on the international situation. And he gets a copy of Protect and Survive and he thinks he's doing the right thing by following all the advice. And of course we know that it's hopeless and that they are helpless. But they do what they've been told to do. They're obedient and they're decent and they're law-abiding citizens. And they simply do what they did in the Blitz, not realising it's futile. Now the Guardian reviewed When the Wind Blows in 1983 and they say that lots of people had tried to debate Protect and Survive, had tried to question it, had written powerful essays about it, had hosted debates about it but they shouldn't have done because that meant they were taking Protect and Survive seriously. They tried to meet it and dismantle it via serious debate and rational thought. The Guardian's review says that in doing so They gave it a status which it never warranted. I'll quote here from their review from February 1983. What was needed was the technique and approach of a comic artist. For Protect and Survive is a comic document, albeit of an unintentional and macabre kind. It recommends, for example, that entire families should huddle in fortified hidey holes under the household stairs, while the megatonnage blasts their society and its infrastructure to pieces and that they should amuse themselves by playing games, reading aloud and holding group discussions while the fallout settles. In the end, the review says, Protect and Survive found its match in the form of a sick jokester named Raymond Briggs, the author, of course, of When the Wind Blows, whose speciality is gullible, downtrodden characters who strive to do what they are told by their betters. When the Wind Blows brought two of them to life as a couple of old geezers, preparing for, living through, 
and of course dying after a nuclear attack. Needless to say, Jim and Hilda Bloggs followed their ruler's instructions to the letter. While stalking their doomsday larder, Jim panics because they don't have peanut butter and is not mollified even when his spouse reminds him that he hates the stuff anyway. So that's quite um, quite a powerful argument. I like that. You have to meet Protect and Survive on its own terms. You have to meet it with comedy, with black humour. Meeting it with sensible and reasoned debate gives it um, a status that it doesn't merit. Again from The Guardian in September 1981, the newspaper reported on a conference about nuclear war and its effects. And it says, Protect and Survive, the government publication intended as a guide to the nuclear war, was described as illusory, unrealistic, and likely to induce a false sense of security. And this happened during a sharp clash of opinions yesterday between nuclear experts and a Home Office scientific advisor at the British Association meeting in York. One of the main speakers there was Professor Joseph Rotblatt, a professor of physics and one of Britain's leading experts on the effects of nuclear weapons. He said that Protect and Survive was sensible only if the concept of limited nuclear war was taken as acceptable. I certainly don't accept that concept. I think that nuclear war, even if you began a limited one, it would always escalate. Surely it's only natural that it will escalate. I don't see how you can possibly keep it limited. So Professor Rotblatt said, yes, Protect and Survive would only work in that very unrealistic scenario. And he's quoted here saying, I and other speakers do not accept the concept of limited nuclear war. If there is nuclear war, it will be all out. Under these circumstances, the concept of protect and survive is unrealistic. And in February 1980, the Guardian again (laughs) viciously attacked protect and survive, particularly the notion that the government would wait until the last minute or until the last couple of days before nuclear attack, before posting protect and survive through all our letterboxes and broadcasting on TV. Now, the notion that you can print millions of copies of this and then post them through all the letterboxes in Britain in the last moments before nuclear war is ridiculed, of course. I'll quote here from the article, which is very peppery. Of all the preposterous notions conjured up in the bureaucratic brain, this must surely be the barmiest. What are they going to do? Send messenger boys round, shoving the thing through letterboxes like minicab handouts? hoping to cover the territory in the 3.6 minutes that we are told will be our warning time before the Big Bang. At the very best, that will give us about two and a half seconds to read and digest its recommendations, fill our sandbags, tape our windows, change our underwear, send our loved ones to the Isle of Man and settle down with a large dram to await Nirvana. What a load of cobblers. What a con job. What an insult to the intelligence. In the name of St Simon the Fair, patron of the simple-minded, who do these well-intentioned cuckoos think they're kidding? Have these helpful survivalists ever seen an atom bomb go off? I have three times. I also had a look at Hiroshima, whose citizens, as far as I know, were issued with no handy instructions on what to do before being obliterated. When you come to think of it, it doesn't matter very much what you do before being obliterated. No obliteration without representation, say we all. But who consults us? The article goes on. These consolations about protect and survive are part of the game. 
They are the doctor's placebos, signifying almost nothing except to tranquilise. And as far as I'm concerned, they do the opposite. Every honest scientist or strategist knows that there is no protection against nuclear attack except to prevent it happening. There's no way to prevent it happening except by eliminating the weapon. There is no way of eliminating the weapon, period. As Albert Einstein said sadly long ago, you can invent things. You cannot disinvent things. You are stuck with them. So we see that Protect and Survive got a fair bit of mockery in popular culture and in the media. But what was being said in Parliament, where things are supposedly a bit more dignified? Interestingly, we can see that in December 1980, the government acknowledged the ridicule and mockery and said Protect and Survive was an easy target for these insults because its advice was so simple and basic. Yet if only we would follow this basic advice, oh, so many of us could be saved. So they were trying to use the ridicule and turn it on its head. The fact that you lot are laughing at this is because it's so obvious. But because it's so obvious, it will work. Well, I must admit to feeling a bit of sympathy for the government when it comes to protect and survive. Because it seems like they are damned if they do, damned if they don't. If they hadn't released any kind of guidance to the public, they would have been criticised for that, of course. Uh, But when they do release something, (laughs) they are mocked for it. And there's no in-between. You can't release something which gives the blunt truth. They had to create something, and inevitably that something had to be mocked. I hope you've enjoyed this quick look at Protect and Survive. Of course, the whole video, the whole um, series of films are available on YouTube. Just do a search for Protect and Survive. It's all there. And a reminder that I am on YouTube under the Atomic Hobo. So do subscribe to that channel if you like. So before I go today, just let me give a quick thank you to some of my patrons. Let me say thank you to Hallie Andrews, Chris Carini, Louis, Sally Everett Brick, Tom Allen, Paul Jonathan Viner, Hack Green, Secret Nuclear Bunker, Gary Watson, Arika and Lucy Stegerwald. And when I mention their Hack Green... They are running a series of films at their bunker, which is in Nantwich, uh, and they're doing a a double bill, I think in September, of Threads and The Day After. So take a look at their website if you want to pop along there and see some of the uh, films. It would be quite cool, I admit, to watch Threads in a nuclear bunker. I might try and go along to that one in September. So thank you to all my patrons. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back next week with another podcast.